This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. This one coming to you from London. Sitting beside me today is the uh, London, no, the European Bureau Chief, I should say, for the Seven Network, Hugh Whitfield. Welcome, Hugh. G'day, James. Welcome to London. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, same to you. Thank you, mate. Um, We'll start. How long are you watching the news? You seem to have been in Europe for quite a while for seven. How long is it? Uh, it'll be five years in March, which has gone very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I turned up. Uh, what, the first big story that I did was, from here was the three-month Rolf Harris trial back oh. in 2014, mm-hmm. um, and it was a good grounding to get to know London and how Britain works. Uh, and then from there, it uh, has not stopped. Um, I went straight from there to Israel to the Gaza war that they had in 2014 and then straight from there to Ukraine to the MH17 crash. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's cha- the, uh, Europe's changed. This job has changed, definitely. I started off by myself yeah. um, as a, a, a VJ uh, for most of the time, occasionally using freelance cameramen. Um, and now we've got a bureau of three full-time staff, which is um, obviously great. It's grown and taking more of an interest in, in this part of the world and Seven coming back here after 10 years. We didn't have a bureau here for 10 years uh, before I arrived. So, um, yeah, it's been a, I think it's been a positive step, um, certainly in, as, as an organisation. I'll get on to some news and, and lots of other things, but just quickly on your appointment. I mean, when you were initially offered the job, I'm guessing they, they probably didn't say it'd be for five years. What, what, <laughs> what, what was the initial sort of thoughts? A couple of years or how does it work? Oh, yeah, one of my bosses said, oh, you'll be ready to come back after two years. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, it's gone very quickly. Um, I, don't, I, I probably, I mean, I didn't think I'd be here for this long, um, but it's a very hard job to give up. Mm. Um, and the, the quality of the stories that you're doing, um, but there is a frenetic pace to it and um, uh, at the same time you know I, I, the advice that I give people that come over here now is that there are peaks and troughs and you need to take advantage of the troughs um, because the peaks are relentless um, I, we, we had a period last year obviously with terror attacks after terror attack and then Grenfell Tower and it was just non-stop for six weeks and I, you know I don't think we really had a day off for six weeks and then there are weeks where it's pretty quiet here and you need to take advantage of that. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's gone very quickly. Uh, it's, um, it's a great job and, um, yeah, I mean, every, every week there's something fascinating to talk about. Oh, well, as we sort of... I've got a few things, specific stories I want to ask you about and I guess we'll find a little bit of, about you and how you operate as we go through those stories. I mean top of my list was was going to have to be Brexit, but but to keep this really topical, I mean, today the um, Manchester United have sacked their um, their football uh, manager and it's it's just pushed everything else off the front pages, so a a good football story here in uh, the UK is still a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely and I was listening to Breakfast Radio this morning and that was the main topic of conversation and I think maybe in Australia we kind of lose sight of the fact that um, football is massive here and it's probably one of the few things that actually brings the whole country together on a, on a talking point. And when you listen to especially national radio here, you get people calling in from all over the country to give their two cents on whatever's going at a club that sometimes you've never heard of. So, I mean, Manchester United's a little bit different. Um, oh, look, that, that, that's huge news here. Um, a caretaker coach now, former player. Um, so... Uh, I, I think we we saw um, la or this uh, over the last eighteen months with the problems at Chelsea and then the problems at Arsenal as well with Arsene Wenger. Um, it, it, it is a that there's stories that that don't um, that don't go away. Football's always going to be there, and then of course we had the World Cup in summer as well, and. Um, there's that song that you cannot get out of your head that football's coming home, we know football's coming home, and then it didn't come home. So, um, yeah, it's been interesting to watch and uh, an education for me um, uh, because, yeah, I mean, football, to the, it, it's just not to the same extent as it is here in, in Australia. Sure. And, and that sort of brings me... and I'll, I'll, I'll fold that in with Brexit. Even though it's massive, it's not quite as massive for Australian viewers, I guess. Um, but you've obviously been covering that more. That, but how do you decide on a story? I mean, for example, with Jose Marino going, would you do anything on that? 
and and how have you been handling Brexit as well with with regard to how much you know Australian viewers want to know about it? Not sure about Jose. I mean, it's a sports <laughs> story, um, and uh, uh, I think we'll, we'll gauge the reaction, see what sort of grabs come out during the day. Um, in terms of Brexit, we covered the referendum back in 2016, mm. um, and we it was a re- it's been a very difficult over the last two years to work out how we're going to cover it because it is it has been the headline here every day for two and a half, three years and it sucks the life out of every other news story. It just doesn't leave any oxygen for any other story um, whether it's on the 24 hour news channels or in the papers. Um, so, I mean we, we kind of made a decision uh, after the referendum that we wouldn't touch the, the day-to-day machinations of Brexit because it's just not practical and I don't think our viewers in Australia are necessarily interested in the, the, the power plays in Britain. Um, unfortunately, the personalities in British politics are just not the same as, say, American <laughs> politics, where we could get away with doing a Trump story every day. Um, obviously, in the last couple of weeks, that's changed with pressure on the Prime Minister, genuine thoughts that she could go at any point, um, and the realities of Brexit hitting home for this country and, I guess, the rest of the world. Um, it's been back in 2016. The referendum was really interesting. I, I was personally shocked at the result, and a lot of people in the London media were shocked at the result. But I think once you got outside of London, you came to realise the level of dissatisfaction that there was with the way things were structured in terms of the EU. And we did a few stories outside of London in very bre- pro-Brexit areas, and it became very clear very quickly that the animosity towards the EU and the, the, the power behind the Leave campaign was really strong. Um, and I think we've kind of seen that shift in the last two years where there's the realities of Brexit are dawning on people. I think it's still going to happen. Um, and it's going to be a rocky couple of months. And um, at the moment, there's no, no one's got a real plan with three months to go. It's, it's, it's honestly bizarre. It's bizarre. It, it seems to be coming a little clearer, and I've always thought this might have been part of the reason, is, is immigration. And, and <clears throat> you think of what was happening around Europe and people moving in from the Middle East across Europe around the time of the referendum, um, and it's becoming even more clearer now that that's probably a lot of people who voted for it. It's their, was their main concern. Um, and I won't get too much into this, but it, it looks like if they could find a solution to sort of, you know, put a handle on the um, people coming into Britain, a lot of people really wouldn't care about the rest of it, you know, staying in the EU. Um, immigration was a massive part, and, and there are politicians on both sides who will argue that it wasn't, but it was, um, especially when you speak to real voters. Mm. Um the, the migrant crisis... I, I covered a lot of the migrant crisis in 2015 in Eastern Europe. Um, and, yes, it was in the headlines. And those pictures for a lot of people in Britain were quite shocking. You know, it, 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 to some extent, it was kind of similar to Trump voters fearing the caravan coming up through Mexico. They genuinely feared that there was going to be thousands of people arriving at Dover and trying to get in. And to some extent, there was. There was a massive jungle in Calais. Um, but people who come from Syria or Iraq are not going to come to Britain, you know, leaving the EU is not going to stop them coming. Mm. Um, it was more for some people, people from Eastern Europe, and, and there is a race element to this, unfortunately, and you can't deny it. Um, the, the arrival into the EU of countries like Poland and Lithuania massively changed immigration into Britain. Um, you know, there's various not jokes, but anecdotes and stories that people tell it. You know, you used to go to a pub, into a pub in London in the 80s and there was always an Australian or a Kiwi behind the bar. Mm. Well, now it's a Romanian or a Pole or a Lithuanian. We went to a town um, in Lincolnshire where um, in the last 10 years the population of Lithuanians and Poles had increased um, to the extent that that used to be 1% of the population and was now 10% of the population in this town. Pretty big change in the in the characteristics of a community. Um, and that it had become one of the... It had now had one of the highest murder rates per capita in Britain. Now, the locals blamed the new arrivals. It also had a peanut factory. One of the main attractions for those new arrivals was working in the peanut factory where you literally earn peanuts. You you don't earn a lot of money. And speaking to people on the street, one of the key concerns that they told us was that they were worried that all these new immigrants were taking all of their jobs. 
But when we put it to them that, well, do you want uh, – taking their jobs and their children's jobs. But when we put it to them that, you know, do you want your kids to work at the peanut factory, well, they said no because you don't get paid enough. So it, there, was a, there was a lack of logic to some of the argument because you can't have – you can't say you were worried about people – and your rivals taking your jobs if you don't want to do those jobs in the first place. Um, and I, I think on both sides there was a level of, I guess, not necessarily telling the whole truth when it came to the campaigns for Leave and Remain. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the setup here. Um, we're speaking to you in the sort of where you work out of in, in London. Um, now, there's, you've got a small team here. Seven have got a small team. As you mentioned before, it's grown from nothing. Now there's three of you. Yes, yeah, so there's myself, Laurel Irving, who um, is, was a reporter in Melbourne before she's come over here, uh, and James Cannon is the cameraman. He was in Sydney and Brisbane for seven before that. Um, so we're, we're sitting in the ITN building. Mm-hmm. Um, some of your listeners will be aware of ITN, massive... Uh, uh, history and legacy of British uh, domestic and international reporting. Um, some very famous correspondents that you know been all over. Just a very, very, very strong news um, legacy. Uh, and we are in their building on Gray's Inn Road, uh, where they produce out of here ITV News, Channel Four News, uh, and Channel Five News. Um, and also in our building as well is NBC and their London Bureau, which is where they run all of their foreign coverage from and where we run <laughs> all of our foreign coverage for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Of course, we've got a bureau in LA as well. So um, it's a small team. It's a different setup. You know, I, I work from home a bit. Laurel works from home a bit. Um, Jimmy works from home quite a bit as well. But we use this as our base um, and uh, having access to ITN and NBC uh, gives us some real leverage, I think, and able to respond to things when we need to and access some of their content as well. I think Laurel's been here about a year yeah. and I think she moved over with a family. She did, So yeah. tell us how you juggle but the, the just sort of role between you. Uh, well, Laurel's got two kids. Um, they're in school here. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, look, Laurel uh, has, has obviously came over with a massive... Um, body of work already. She's covered Olympics. She, I think she went to South Africa to cover Pistorius 14 times or something crazy like that. Um, so a huge amount of experience that she's brought with her. Um, she's on her way back at the moment from a court hearing in um, Germany where an Australian maf- alleged mafia uh, uh, drug runner um, has been appearing in court. Um, we kind of split it up a little bit so that she does a bit more of the sunrise stuff in the evening. Um, and, and I try to focus on the 6pm story um, throughout the day. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, she's got a different commitments to me. I don't, I don't have a, a wife or partner or kids or anything like that. She's, she does. So, I, I look, I think she's making it work and I think we try to work around each other and um, it's a small team and we, um, yeah, I guess we cooperate and, and, and it works. It clearly works because, um, you know, I don't, I don't think we've missed a beat this year, mm. um, touch wood, and um, for, from a very, very small, hard-working team. What's your competition like here? I mean, do you just, do you keep an eye on what they're up to or do people do that for you back in uh, Australia? <clears throat> I, I can't watch their bulletins <laughs> over here. Uh, um, look, it's funny because... Um, We've, we've obviously Nine has a presence here as well. They've got a few more people than us. Um, the ABC has a really big bureau. Um, they always have, of course. SBS has got a VJ. Um, the papers are quite strong here still as well, which is a good thing, I think. Um, you know, there's been a reduction in some of the bureaus for some media organisations. I don't think that's happened out of London yet. Um, there were there are periods where we see each other quite a lot at breaking news stories and um, uh, I mean we, the Rolf Harris trials are a good example where we spend every day with each other and there's a you know I think we are competitive but we also know that we all have our own logistical lim- limitations that we don't have back in Australia you know we can't call the Cos desk in Sydney and send them and get us to send them get us to get them to send us another camera or a link truck or something like that we have to work together sometimes um but there's a good little core group of um australian journalists um and uh we all get along um 
we all we all know each other's strengths and um, yeah I mean it, the pace of news these days means that um, you know you can pretty much get everywhere you need to be without any trouble. Okay, well, let's fire through some of the, the news items that you've, you've been following <laughs> over recently and over a little while, I guess. I mean, mm. you mentioned Laurel coming back from Germany mm. where an Australian's been involved in a case. Mm. Um, you've been tracking a, an Australian-born called Neil Prakash, I think, mm. when you've made a few trips to the, to the yeah. Middle East about that. Tell us a little bit about how you first got into that story. Yeah, he's back in court, actually, tomorrow. Uh, we're not going this time. Um, <clears throat> well, that story's been running... Uh, since last, what are we, 2018, last April, I think, mm-hmm. uh, when it was when we first kind of latched onto it. Um, we, uh, it was, was it April 2017, we went down to the Syrian border um, knowing that he'd been arrested and we kind of trying to, we were trying to get into, work out what was going on with him. And we, as you say, we've been back about three or four, I think, four times now for those various court so appearances. in Syria? No, so he's right on the Syrian border. So he was arrested coming, trying to cross from the Syrian border into Turkey. Okay. Now, he claims he was trying to flee um, ISIS um, after being, he says, being forced to join them. Mm-hmm. Um, he crossed the border near Kilis, which is right on the Syrian border, um, and is now in jail in uh, has been spending time in jail between Kilis and Gaziantep, which is a city about an hour north of Kilis. Um, back in April 2014, um, we went down to that border uh, to do some reporting when Donald Trump and, the, and America first started launching airstrikes against Assad following that chemical attack. Um, and, uh, yeah, we did some really, really interesting stories about the impact um, that uh, the flood of refugees had had, the fear of terrorists crossing the border into southern Turkey, um, the liberation of some of those towns as well. Um, fascinating part of the world. Uh, it's, um, you know, you can stand up on some of those hills right near the border and you can hear the air... You could hear back then the airstrikes pounding the earth off in the distance. Um, we, we haven't gone into Syria. It's not a risk I think we're prepared to take right now. Mm. Um, obviously there are reporters that can, can get into Syria. Some news organisations that are banned um, will find it very hard. Assad just doesn't give them visas. Um, ITN actually is one of the few British organisations that's able to report from Syria on a regular basis because okay. Assad seems to give their reporters visas. But I know the BBC rarely gets in these days sure. and does their reporting from Beirut. Okay. Um, your own personal safety, you mentioned then, you <coughs> consider about, you know, the risks involved when you do a story. You were in Paris earlier this month. Yeah. We saw you wearing a helmet yeah. for, for some of the uh, demonstrations. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we had a... Um, I was wearing a bike helmet that I bought yeah. from the bike shop opposite <laughs> St Pancras sta- uh, Station before we got on the train because the bike I'd ordered, we'd ordered from online hadn't arrived yet. Um, we had gas masks as well um, and some goggles. Uh so we, we, we've got, um, as all crews over here, I'm pretty sure, do have is, um, you know, ballistics PPE mm-hmm. for reporting from a war zone that, I've, that we wore in Iraq um, or in Gaza. When there's a war on and you don't want to get shot or injured mm-hmm. by an IED or a, something like that. Um, that's a bit extreme, I think, to wear in Paris at yeah. a riot. Um, and the... So that's um, like risk. a bulletproof vest you're talking about. In Iraq, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to yeah. wear that on the streets of Paris. And we, no. we do have a ballistic helmet oh, um, okay. as part right. of that kit. But I think it's not, it's not the right message to send when you're in a, 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 a protest. So that's why we're wearing bike helmets mm-hmm. um, because that, that's the level of safety that you need. Um, so, look, we've done training. Um, I, I did my... Uh, HEFAT, Hostile Environment First Aid Training, um, here in Britain um, mm. with the same guys that train the BBC and now CNN. I did some, um, I did my training with some CNN and, and ITN reporters, actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, you need to know the basics of first aid and how you, how to take cover and where are safe places. But it's, it's not just that. Um, and and the, Paris is a little bit different, but maybe more so when you're in Iraq or some parts of Turkey or, or Gaza. You need to... It, it's keeping your wits about you. It's, OK, if you do get caught or detained or kidnapped, what are you going to do? Um, and all of that training takes place. Um, and obviously there's a huge amount of trust that you put in your 
your colleagues, um, but also the security. You know, a lot of the time in those sort of places, you're travelling with security as well. Um, so Paris, I mean, the tear gas was bad. It hurts your throat. It stays in your throat for like a 24-hour, 48-hours period. Um, it's not very pleasant. Um, and it was kind of weird because we were standing in the middle of the Champs-Élysées and tear gas being fired around and they're fighting or charging at police in an avenue between Cartier and Mont Blanc on, on, in one of the most famous shopping strips in the world. Um, so it was a little bit surreal, I think. Um, but I, I think our story told what had happened in that little part where we were. And because we'd done two stories, previ- two previous weeks of stories um, as, from agency mm-hmm. um, pictures. Uh, and, my, and my intention in going that weekend was to... I mean, a journalism lecturer would call it a vignette. You're, you're telling the story around you. Um, and we found ourselves in a position where we were able to tell a pretty compelling story, I think, from that little location where we were at the tops of the Champs, top of the Champs, um, over the course of about three hours. That's, um, you often wonder, I mean, in that, in, in that situation it worked wonderfully, you right in the sort of action and that, but you think sometimes do you, you must go to a whole lot of trouble to get somewhere, <clears throat> then you might just have a little, a little few seconds of you right at the end of the package or something, do you? Do, do you do you have any say over how that get, stuff gets put together, and and do you see it back and go, I oh, wouldn't have minded a few more seconds during that that package? Happens in Sydney as well. <laughs> you drive a long way just for a piece to camera up yeah. on the northern beaches when you actually spent all day in the Martin Place newsroom. Oh, look, I would always love more time <laughs> for my stories, and in fact, there's always a battle between. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm always pushing for more time to tell the story properly, um, mm. or the the amount of effort that we go to. But um, also, I also know that. Um, wow, I mean, we've got an hour bulletin now, and have mm. for a couple of years, and it fills up every day. There's, I don't think there's any days where the where our producers in Sydney are scrambling for stories. I am still amazed um, that we managed to cut everything down to half an hour yeah. up until what 2014 when we changed. So. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that Paris story ran for, I think it was two minutes, 30 or two, oh, yeah, two minutes, 30, two minutes, 40 or something yeah. like that. I mean, that's pretty valuable time. Sure. Um, and I think we needed it to tell the story. Mm. And I, I always implore, um, producers that I'm dealing with to, before they make any judgment about the length, because that's the first thing you see, is to watch the story. Um, and often they find it pretty hard to cut down, which is good. Yeah. I mean, you get your fair share of exclusives, it seems, too. I mean, a reasonably recent one was that Formula 3 driver. It was amazingly only 18. That incredible crash went into Macau, and you got one of the few interviews with her. Give us a bit of background on how that came about. Yeah. It was Sophie someone. Uh, Sophia Flourish, yeah. uh, German. Uh, she was 17 when that crash happened, okay. 270, 280 clicks an hour um, in Macau, November 18. Um, everyone will have seen the video of the car flying through the air, smashing into the photographer's hoardings. Um, we became aware that she was um, back at home in Munich and prepared to... Um, was, was open to uh, not... Certainly not offers, um, but uh, they they wanted an idea of how an interview would work depending on the market. Um, So I wrote a pitch, and um, which was that we, you know, we're Australia's number one news. We're the most viewers of any network in Australia for our news programs. We can um, run it not just on the evening news, but on sunrise as well. There's a huge motorsport following in Australia. Um, We we are the gateway for her to the Asian market in the English with with using using the English language. and and they agreed to sit down with us. So there were, she did, she's only done two English language interviews in the world, um, one other uh, in I think in Italian, uh, and she's doing some German interviews in the coming weeks. Uh, so it was us in ABC Good Morning America. Okay. Um, so I was pretty happy with that. Um, and I, you know I'm, I'll happily admit that I was a little surprised, um, but I think it's. Uh, you know, the story's done very well online. It, we, that story had three minutes 30, I think, on a mm. Sunday night, um, and it was worth it. Um, she was great, a great interview, um, told, the, told her story very well. She's very calm, very confident, very ambitious. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's good to have a, what, a, a pretty close to a world exclusive um, on a story like yeah. that. 
when you had a little help from a um, Australian F1 driver, <laughs> was that part of your pitch or is that something you added later? No, I didn't tell her we were doing that. And when her reaction when she first saw that video was genuine surprise because oh. I, we, we, part of the discussions were um, whether or not she would be happy to... Um, view the the video of her crashing and talk us through it. They didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Totally fine. Yeah. Get that. I mean, we've got the video. We can run it anyway in the story. And they knew we were going to do that anyway. Um, so I, I had to before I introduced that video in the story. I, I had to tell her it's not the crash that I'm going to show you on my phone, so that she didn't freak out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but look, Daniel Ricciardo, what a champ. He. Um, Oh, in more ways than one. He um, he's he's at home in uh, with his family in Western Australia, uh, and we contacted him and um, he did that video for us and sent it through. And she was obviously over the moon. You can see her reaction. She, in fact, throughout the rest of the interview, we didn't actually put this in the story, but she kept referring back to it. She couldn't believe that that Daniel had recorded that for her. And they met actually. Um, on, when she was on her way home from Macau, she had a stopover in Dubai uh, and they ran into each other in the lounge mm-hmm. and it was the first time that uh, she had met him. She's obviously a massive fan. And, I mean, I think Daniel, for her, is a great role model because he's so... I mean, he's obviously got so many challenges in that sport. He gets treated pretty roughly by um, others around him sometimes uh, but keeps a level head, um, is very down-to-earth... I mean, he recorded on his phone a video for us to show to her. I mean, that's pretty cool. And um, speaking to some friends of mine in the motorsport industry um, uh, since then, I mean, they, they were pretty impressed that he did that as well um, without having without worrying about what the team would say. He knew that he should do it. He did it. Um, and it, and it, Sophia loved it, and I think it added to the story. Hugh, tell us a little bit about... You mentioned there you, you did a pitch for a story... Paperwork, your expenses, passport, travel. I mean, do you and Laurel have to look after all that stuff? Can you push it off to anybody? I mean, accreditation for things yeah. takes time too, doesn't it? I mean, talk me through some of that. I reckon um, sometimes 70 to 80% of my job is um, logistics. <laughs> logistics and paperwork. Oh. Um, so I take most of that on. I mean, I've been here for a while now and I know how, tend to know how most of it works. Um, but the amount of accreditation in this country in particular is, I mean, some journalists, you know, some Australian journalists just would not be able to survive, I think. <laughs> and some cos desks would certainly not be able to survive. I think in Australia we can get away often with turning up yeah. and saying we're with okay. Channel 7 or whatever mm. and being let in somewhere because they know who we are. But here there is so many... I mean, it's not just the Brits. You've got basically crews from almost every respectable news organisation in the world here. Um, basing themselves out of London to cover Europe. Um, so there's just so many crews. You know, we're dealing with accreditation with people like the Palace for every royal event, Buckingham Palace and Kensington Palace. Um, some of them have exorbitant fees. To cover the Royal oh, really? Chelsea show, uh, tr- Chelsea Flower Show costs a couple of hundred pounds just to get the accreditation. Um, sometimes for things like, you know, cricket tours... Um, and stuff like that. You've got to be accrediting months in advance. Royal Ascot is one, is one that they want they want paperwork in, in January, February when the event isn't until April. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of accreditations. Um, and here as well, journalists are accredited nationally with a press pass. Mm. Um, that that uh, I mean, I'm not going to probably reveal all the security things that it gives you but um, you need it yeah. I mean you have to show it when you're out on the street when police ask for it um, and the same is in Europe it goes a long way in Europe as well and then when you go to somewhere like Turkey you need to be accredited with the government there as well and mm. you we're in a situation now where in Turkey if you don't have accreditation then you're going to get locked up and no other country in the world mm. locks up more journos than Turkey mm. um, so it's a difficult place to work so yeah, there's a huge amount of paperwork, um, and it's not just the accreditations. Then, it, then it's getting somewhere. Yeah. And when there's a breaking story, um, it's it's um, how quickly can we get there? Can we get a car? Can we get a hotel? Where can we stay? Where can we stay that's safe in some places? Where can we stay that um, is going to be you know have a good backdrop if we need to do crosses from a hotel balcony? Um, a good example uh, is when Strasbourg broke the other night with the terror attack. Mm. Um, I think it was what eight eight thirty when news started coming through. I was straight online checking flights. 
wasn't going to work. We weren't going to make it by 6pm, the 6pm news, which is 8 o'clock in the morning in France the next day. Um, and then we kind of, Laurel and I kind of, well, maybe we drive. <clears throat> so Jimmy and I ended up driving through the night um, and got there at about 4.30pm Sydney time, so about 6.30 in the morning. Um, and it was worth it. It was a, it was a, it was a big story. Five people have died now. It's the worst terror attack in Europe this year. Mm-hmm. Um, in a in a city that is, you know, one of the hearts of European democracy. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're the sort of decisions that we have to make. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, are we going to make it by six pm? What value are we going to add by being there? Um, Sometimes, you know, if it's just going to be a live cross, like, is that really going to be worth it? Um, if, is it going to be a two-day story? If we're going to go somewhere, do are we going to be able to gather some original content on the ground for a second day? Just the way with the time zones work here, obviously, um, you know, when something breaks, we're often not... We just we physically can't get there in time. I don't know, like, NBC has different deadlines for us. Their, yeah. their evening news is, is 11.30 midnight here in London. Mm-hmm. Um... For, for the Brits, you know, they need, you know, if something happens at four o'clock in the afternoon, well, their news is two hours away. So everyone's making different decisions. Um, and and the, the thought process that I'm going through is the same thought process that our competitors are going through as well. And we often make different decisions and that's fine. Mm. Um, but, do you often make those calls yourself or do you need to get feedback from Australia on what they think? Or? Um, <clears throat> oh, sometimes I, I, you know, will we'll wake people up just to make, just to run something, buy something, no. or if we're really going to travel somewhere, I just want, I just want the clarification yeah. that we're, this is what we're going to do. Mm. And I also want people to know, I want people back in Sydney to know where we are, yeah. um, because if we're driving through the night somewhere, you know, there's a, oh, I want them to know that, that to follow us and keep sure. checking in on us and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, but with the time zone, you know, there's a lot of we have to make a lot of decisions ourselves, or I have to make a lot of decisions myself over here about how we're going to cover something, um, without uh, without being in a newsroom where I can bounce off people. Um, and we, we we have one producer in Perth, um, and, and obviously a massive production team in Sydney, and, and Perth being a little bit closer to our our time zone means that we're able to bounce ideas off there a bit more than Sydney um, which works for us and look I, as I say I think we've you know this year's been a little bit different news wise um, we haven't had the huge amount of breaking news that we've had in previous years and that's because the breaking news is often bad that's mm. not a, a bad thing but we've had some really big set piece events um, two royal weddings uh, I had a almost a month in Russia at the World Cup and things like that and they take a huge amount of organisation and um, yeah it's, it, there's, there's so many aspects to this job it's, yeah. yeah let's back it up there a little mm. bit you can't just dismiss <laughs> you cannot dismiss the royal wedding just yes. as you know that <clears throat> simply well, were two royal weddings really yeah. weren't there now back home and I'm, you probably I'm sure you know the seven often brands itself the royal network yes. now because they've become they've realised that <laughs> how hungry their audience is for for docos, um, live coverage, uh, reports of whatever's happening. So is that something that's really changed maybe since you first started in the role to, to, to what you're doing now? Um, I don't think it's... I think I don't think it's changed. I think... Uh, not, not massively. I think um, the stories have changed. Um, you know, while I've been here, Megan arrived on the scene mm. and is now a member of the royal family. Mm. I think Sunrise has always had a really big appetite for royal stories. Yeah. Um, and when I was here by myself, you know, I would often be filing a royal story for Sunrise and then something else for 6pm. And that's that was not unusual. Um, yeah, I mean, wow. We, I think I was really proud of the um, coverage we did of especially Harry and Megan's wedding. Mm. Um it was very competitive. Um, we brought over a lot of people. Um, I think we made some really good calls about where we put people. Um, having that studio on the long walk, looking down with 100,000 people and Windsor Castle in the background and the carriage going right behind us, no one else had that in, from an Australian network. Um, and we, I mean, I spent months in the lead up to the wedding 
organising a lot of that logistical stuff on the ground here because we didn't bring... We, we had people, obviously, in Sydney working on it, but they were also working on the Com Games and the Winter Olympics as well. So I was working on that here, um, making sure we could get into those great locations. And it's a, it was a great story. Mm. Um, it was a beautiful day. Windsor Castle looked amazing on television. Um, and I think, you know... I obviously see some of the comments online that, you know, that people think it's a waste of money or they're not interested in the Royals. Well, they're wrong because people are interested in the Royals. It was one of the highest rating events of the year. Um, I think, what we had nearly three million people at the peak nationally watching our coverage and then you add in the other networks doing coverage, it was close to five million people. You don't get... you You don't get... Um, figures like that for any sporting event these days um, so there is a there is an appetite for it um, and I think we made the right call definitely doing uh, broadcasting uh, Eugenie's and Jack's wedding as well because it rated, rated its socks off too uh, prime time on a Friday night and it's funny because um, I obviously deal a lot with cor- royal reporters and correspondents over here and especially in ITN and and um, they they were amazed that the, at the amount of um, effort that we go to to make a broadcast look good, um, especially for Jack and Eugenie, because it was in the morning here on a Friday. But for us, it was Friday night prime time. It was the perfect perfect spot. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's good to have those good news stories because it's not always um, good news. And it was really interesting following Harry and Meghan in the months between, you know, I was, in the, I was in the sunken garden that day at Kensington Palace when they came out and announced their engagement and did that photo op. Um, it, was our fir- it was the first time I'd seen Meghan. Um, and then we followed them across the UK uh, as they did those series of engagements leading up to the wedding and the way the crowds reacted to her especially. And Harry looked pleased as punch that he'd found his, his girl. Um, this last couple of weeks has been a little bit rocky for them PR-wise, but they'll come through the end of it. People forget it after Christmas, I think, and once she starts doing royal engagements properly and um, puts her head down, and, uh, yeah, I think we'll get used to it. You know, it was a very clever call by Seven to do that second royal wedding, called Mickey Mouse royal wedding by a lot of people, but, but the fact that you were the only ones doing it and it was perfect Friday night viewing back in Australia, the, the figures were uh, phenomenal. And I think it was that break in the finals footy too, wasn't there? So there was a free, so it just worked perfectly on, uh, on lots of levels. Um, when you're out doing royal stories that you and lots of other reporters like capturing something happening in the background as you're about to talk, I think you've got a nice one with Trump. In, um, in France recently where, you know, the camera pans back from Trump and there's you doing the story. I think you probably did that with um, with Megan when she first, that day. Um, has there been any funny stories where you've tried to set up something but you've you've just missed it or, or have you been lucky that you've um, captured those things? Um, oh, yeah, look, there's always mistakes <laughs> that happen, isn't there? Um, and uh, Jimmy, Jimmy, the cameraman and I, you know, we work very well together and we know each other's strengths and weaknesses. Um, and I, you know, we have, le- we, you know, we have to trust each other about timing and, mm. and, 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 mm. and that sort of thing. Um, the Royals one is, is a, it's not a bad one to cover because um, we're lucky in a way because there's always a Royal pool. Mm, okay. um, and it's the, Brit- the British networks that have to do that and they, they have to give their footage to everybody else. Um, so while we, so we don't have to worry about capturing every moment of a royal engagement. Mm. We can rely okay. on that royal pool and we just have to worry about the piece to camera, okay. which is a good thing. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a classic shot, isn't it, I guess, with you want them to be in the background to show that you're there and yeah. where they're talking to people and talking to the people that they're speaking to and seeing what they're doing. Um, even though we're not capturing every single frame, um, you know we, we are actually reporting the story properly um, by being there and, and, and seeing what's going on and talking sure. to people. All right, look, just bear with me. A couple more questions for you before, before I let you get on with your day. Um, have you got favourite backdrops at all in London? I mean, the most <coughs> iconic one's probably Buckingham Palace there mm. at the, the, the fountain and the big roundabout. Mm. Um, you, you're outside number 10 recently. That's a, a good one, of course. Have you got any go-to spots? Yeah, there are a few go-to <laughs> spots um, and we need them. Mm. 
we uh, obviously Buckingham Palace um, is a good one, um, and we go to Kensington Palace a little bit too now these days as well because of the Cambridges and the Sussexes. Um, there's a couple of loca- key locations for the Houses of Parliament. Um, when people come to here as a tourist, they ov- obviously come to see Big Ben. But if they walk down past Parliament, um, heading west towards Chelsea on the embankment, there's a, there's a green there called College Green or Abingdon Green. Um, and that's where all the broadcasters have are all set up. And in fact, they're all set up there right now with scaffolding and tents trying to rise above the protests that are there from both sides of the Brexit debate. Um, so that's a key location. Then there's another spot on the other side at Lambeth Bridge. I'm not giving away any secrets here because everyone <laughs> uses these locations. Um, there's another spot over at Lambeth Bridge um, that looks back across the river towards Parliament, which is a really nice as well. The problem with Parliament at the moment is that um, it's covered in scaffolding yeah. and you can't see Big Ben because they're restoring it. Um, and uh, where else do we go? Uh, we, we, there's, a, we, there's, a, there's a nice spot that we use for Tower Bridge as well. It's really hard on the river because so much of the river side here, especially on the south side, is privately owned mm-hmm. and they don't let c- any cameras of any sort set up there, especially with tripods. It's a really big problem for all broadcasters in London. <coughs> um, and all sorts of problems during the roll South trial. side gives you the best views back of the city, right? Yeah, and, and towards Tower Bridge and that sort of thing near City Hall. And we all had all sorts of problems during the Rolf Harris trial because the Southwark Court sits right in the middle of a privately owned development. So you can't move very far with a camera without causing all sorts of dramas with security. And, you know, they really are paranoid about it here. And it's, it's a really big issue. It's going to become a really big issue in terms of... Um, um, freedom of the press to some extent, certainly in this city. Um, but like most places, we've got a pretty good run. Um, I, have a, I actually have a rooftop on my apartment, <laughs> um, which we've used a couple of times as well, okay. which is good. Um, but at the, and then at the same time, we, you know, um, we have access to a studio here as well that we use mainly for sunrise crosses um, that you'll see each morning, Laurel or Lye. Uh, Laurel or I using so um, yeah there are some key spots um, and uh, yeah one of the problems is it's a very dark city at night Mm. so you need to find somewhere that's lit up well Um, and and Parliament's not always lit up well unfortunately these days so um, yeah there's a few generic spots that we like to use yeah. Yeah. I'll just finish on asking you maybe your your biggest story since you've been here now (laughs) and I won't lead you into this, but for me, I identify you most with Paris, I guess. I, you, you go there a lot, but there was one big story that I think you spent a lot of time there. That must be up there close, if not your, your biggest story? Well, there's been a few. Um, I think you're talking about Bataclan. Yeah. Um, so I was there on holidays or on a weekend off, mm. um, and uh, I was in a restaurant having dinner. Um, some friends of mine were just on the other side of town, and uh, we heard the sirens, and my phone was on seven percent, and it was a which is very unprofessional, uh, right? Well, I was on a day off. <laughs> yeah. um, I raced back to the hotel and um, plugged my phone in and um, started. Mm. We were on the phone live with Sunrise for most of that night, uh, and then and I was still a VJ at this point, um, okay. so I then scurried across town to the AP studio on the Champs Elysees and did some work out of there for a while and then I mean I was by myself so I wasn't terribly keen on going to the scene by myself because it was still unfolding it was still very unclear I think if I had someone with me I probably could have gone down um but it was just I mean they were still shooting people up so I had to be really careful um and then once I think it got to about three or four a.m some of the agencies um, were sending had had positions for us down there that we could use for live crosses, um, and uh, yeah, that kicked off. I think between Paris and um, we ended up going to Brussels when they started um, trying to find some of the accomplices. Um, I think it ended up being about 12, 14 days mm. away, uh, which was meant to be like two days away as for a weekend. Um, and then obviously we brought in a whole army of people from Sydney and LA, Mel Doyle, Sam Armitage, um, Michelle Tapper, who was at Sunrise at the time. We brought Mike Amor over from LA. Yeah, it was a massive, massive story. Mm. Um, and I kind of probably 
took, took about six months before I was completely comfortable in going back to Paris after that. My, I think that Christmas my dad and my brother came over for Christmas and uh, they were keen to go to Paris and I was, I was not interested. I just didn't want to go back there. Mm. It's probably only this year that I've really, I guess, fallen back in love with Paris and okay. come to appreciate how good it really is. Um, yeah, that, that was a massive story. Um, I think I counted last point that it was... I think I'm a... It's, this is a terrible number, but I think there's 18 fatal terror attacks that I've covered wow. in the last five years across mm. Europe and Africa. Um, and when we say that uh, Strasbourg is the deadliest terror attack in Europe this year, I think that's... Um, and that's five. Um, that's an indication of a couple of things. It's been very relatively quiet this year from a terror perspective in Europe and that is a good thing and suggests that security services are on top of it but it is also a terrible indication of how bad previous years were um, last year in London obviously Westminster Bridge uh, London Bridge uh, Parsons Green wasn't fatal but it was bad um, and obviously the Manchester terror attack as well um, and then before that Bataclan, people tend to forget Charlie Hebdo uh, in Paris as well. At the start of 2015, um, I covered two terror attacks in Tunisia, um, one on the beach at Seuss, the other at the museum in Tunis. Um, The Nice-Bastille Day terror attack in 2016, um, Brussels Airport and Metro um, in March, was that March 2016, I think. Um, So there's been a lot. And it's probably been the one theme that has dominated my time here more than anything. Um, and the other big story that I, I just it will never leave my mind is MH17 in Ukraine and going through the wreckage there for a week, waiting for anybody to arrive and start investigating it or kick the rebels, the Russian rebels out who were dealing with the, the crash site. It was the most bizarre story. Mm. I still think it's, it's really hard to impart on people, and I think what we tried in the story is how ridiculous the situation was that this crash happened and no-one... I mean, people just... I mean, you were just... To, my memory is reporters were just... You could just walk up there and go through the... <coughs> The, the remains and look at the... Stood de- next the, to the engines. Stood no. next to the engines. Oh, yeah, and there was no officials, no, no, no security around the site. Was, so it was obviously during a period of this ongoing conflict between mm. Russian-backed rebels in eastern Ukraine and, and the Kiev government, and at the time, the rebel government in Donetsk was in charge of that area. Um, No-one recognises the Donetsk People's Republic. Um, and bizarrely, the only real Western or, you know, stable influence there was a group from the OSCE, which is the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and they were monitoring the war in in that area. And then there was this plane crash, and all of a sudden they were on the front line. So they were the ones managing the discussions between the rebel leaders in Donetsk and Kiev and the government there and the Malaysian government because it was a Malaysian plane and they were sending people over to get the black boxes and then you had Tony Abbott saying um, we're going to send the AFP onto the ground um, which was ludicrous Uh, and him saying they'll be on the ground in 24 hours and I would ring DFAT and say well where are these people because we can't see them and they would say well the Prime Minister's made the announcement it's happening. It wasn't happening. Um, and there were so many different aspects to that story. You had the war. Oh yeah, we'd stand on top of the hotel in Donetsk each night doing sunrise crosses and just hear... You could hear the war going on in, in, in the distance, the pounding of the earth and bullets going off and live fire somewhere near us in the darkness. And then this tragic plane crash where you would walk through um, paddock of sunflowers or grass or whatever and there'd be a... I remember stumbling across a country road bag with a, I think it was a Woman's Day or New ID sticking out of it. Well, obviously that's an Australian. And the 30-odd Australians that were on board. And um, it was, we, we, we reached a point after a week where we knew it wasn't safe for us to be there anymore. 
um, the rebels were getting too tetchy. Uh, it was hard enough getting in to the Donetsk area. Uh, we were, had some real concerns about getting out. Um, and we ended up going back to Donetsk Propotrovsk, which is a city on the river, on the Donetsk River, uh, and then back up to Kiev for a week when Julie Bishop was there trying to work with the Ukrainians and speaking to the Kiev parliament. So that was very early on in my appointment here. I'd gone, gone, gone from Rolf to um, a week in uh, Israel and Gaza, three days in Gaza. And in fact, um, when we were leaving Gaza, uh, there's this long um, tunnel that you walk through, no man's land, to get back to Israel. And it's a very long, narrow straight. It's got kind of like a colour bond roof and it bars down the side. And we could see these two figures walking towards us. Quickly became apparent that it was Pete Stefanovic and his cameraman. And we met in the middle. Oh, you know, get and he said, well, where are you going? I was like, mate, I'm leaving. I've been in there for three days. And um, he was going in, and he's like, well, I'm only, we're only going in because you're, you're there. I was like, well, mate, I'm out. <laughs> so um, he, he ended up getting stuck in there for a while, I think. Um, and that day that we left was a day that the... Israelis were accused of killing some kids on the beach. Um, and he was there for that, but he was then stuck there. Uh, and we had got out that afternoon, and then that, that next day was the day that the plane went down, and we scrambled on a flight from Kiev to... Uh, sorry, from Tel Aviv to Kiev. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it was just non-stop, that yeah. first couple of months. Mm. Well, it's an incredible bunch of stories that you've covered in that... Um especially early on in, in the piece when it was a one-man operation here. Look, uh, great talking to you, Hugh. Um, you, you're sticking right. When's your next trip back home? You... I'm actually going back first two weeks of January. Okay. So I'll have Christmas here uh, and then go back for two weeks and then um, come back and, yeah, launch into 2019. Um, and who knows what it will bring. Yeah. <laughs> it could be... Brexit's going to be very interesting. I think it's going to dominate, certainly for the first half. Yeah. And I guess we might be seeing a little bit more of you. I mean, you've, the commitments to Sunrise, the Evening News, now Seven signed up for a, um, a late evening bulletin uh, and they're talking about lots of live crosses and that's a, that's a good time to be crossing to uh, Europe too, I guess. Yeah, well, what it's, I think they will have just wrapped their first <laughs> bulletin while okay. we've been talking right, right now. Um, yeah, mid-morning for us, which is perfect. We don't have to worry about late nights or early mornings. <laughs> um, yeah, very exciting. I think, um, I think that we have a, the latest with Michael Usher has... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a run for the, the big bash for now and uh, yeah I mean obviously as a journo working for seven you hope that it would continue beyond that um, no one else is in that space at all really at the moment are they apart from um, SPS so uh, yeah there's certainly a gap in the market mush is a great bloke to have at the home for it yeah all righty all right Hugh Whitefield it's been uh, most enjoyable thanks for your time thanks James